Um, one of the things that I that I uh, experience somewhat often, especially when I'm in, uh, you know, maybe I'm in a place where I'm doing kind of the small talk game. You guys know the small talk game. You know, you're at like a, a friend's birthday party and there's a bunch of people there that you don't know or you're at like, a, you know, maybe one of your kids' activities or events or you're at some sort of a neighborhood function and, and, you, and you meet people. And so you're like, oh, you know, chit-chat, chit-chat, talk about life. And there's a question in those contexts that I always know, I always know it's coming. And I just, I'm always curious to find out what will happen after that question comes. The question, you might know it, it's, so, so what do you do? And when somebody asks me that question, I normally say, oh, well, I'm a pastor. And I, it's just, you never know what you're going to get when somebody asks what you do and you say there's a pastor. Sometimes the answer is, it's really wonderful. They're like, oh, that's, that's so great. You just appreciate that. And, you know, when that happens, you feel good. Other times you get things like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I swore earlier. Or maybe if there's, you know, maybe if there's, like, alcohol at the function, they'll be like, oh, you're a pastor, huh? Okay. Uh, you know, like, people get really awkward or uncomfortable. But then also th- that question and answer kind of leads to some other questions. They'll say things like, oh, well, where's your, uh, what, what church? Are you a pastor at? I say, oh, I'm at Centennial Covenant Church over at Broadway and Mineral. And then they'll ask, oh, well, what kind of a church is that? And this is another question that comes with sort of a spectrum of answers. I had one person that I found out when they said, what kind of a church is that? They meant, is that like a Buddhist church or a Taoist church or a Christian church? Their understanding of church was so big that they really didn't even know which of the various world religions it might fit into. But then other people, they're like, oh, is that, you know, is that a Catholic church or a Protestant church? And I'll say, oh, well, we're a member of the Evangelical Covenant Church. But I tell you what, you say the word evangelical, and then suddenly you've got a whole other round of like, I wonder what just came to your mind when I said I'm a pastor of an evangelical church. And let's be honest, we could all scan back through the past couple years and just pick our favorite news article about evangelicalism in America, and we could know that that news article might be what came to their mind when I said I'm a pastor at an evangelical church. Well, maybe we can, okay, maybe we can navigate that, because of course, you know, we're just at the neighborhood 4th of July barbecue. Who knows how much people really want to get into this discussion, Though sometimes they do really want to get into the discussion. And so that's fine. But, but the, the final kind of question is they're like, oh, the Evangelical Covenant Church, tell me more about that. Because it turns out the Covenant's a pretty small denomination. We have about 900 churches around the U.S. and around Canada. To put that in perspective, uh, one of the largest Lutheran denominations, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, They have about 5,000 churches in the U.S. So, you know, that's a lot more than our small little 900. So people people don't know much about the covenant. Uh, Our formerly pastor, Steve Tolson, he would make jokes about how we've gotten mail to Centennial Convent Church. Didn't realize it was a convent. Or Centennial Convenient Church. Uh... I don't know if, it's, if we want to be convenient or not. I mean, hopefully we're easy to drive to. But needless to say, I find it fascinating to have this back and forth with people in the general discussion of just, what does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be a church? 
And I, I always, I, I honestly sometimes am surprised at myself at the different ways I try and answer that question because people have different experiences, people have different assumptions, people want to engage the conversation in different ways. Well, starting today uh, and continuing through next week and the following Sunday, for the next three Sundays, I want to explore that question a little bit. I want to explore what does it really mean to be a church? What kind of a church are we going to be? How do we want to be known in our community for the people who are part of, members, attenders of this church? What does it mean that we come, we participate in the life and the body of Centennial Covenant Church? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this now for a couple of reasons. First, um, next weekend, next Friday night, all day Saturday and Sunday, Next weekend, the Council of Elders, which is uh, a group of six people elected by this congregation and myself, uh, um, we're going to go and do our annual planning retreat. And so I want to talk about who we really are as a church because we spend significant time and energy every year in conversation, in prayer, saying, God, what's the next thing you have for us? What kind of a church do you want us to be? Where are we going? But it's interesting that that's coming up next week because also about a year and a half ago we had our previous council retreat and one of the big questions that came out of that council retreat is this very question what kind of a church do we want to be it's a question we've answered many times it's a question I hope all of us could describe in different ways but it's also a question I know that like I just said happens at the fourth of July barbecue sometimes we have to revisit and we have to ask Are the answers we have really going deep? Are they really holding the meaning and the significance that we want them to hold? I loved um, Pastor Joseph's sermon last week. Uh, It was just fantastic. And he gave the really really simple and foundational biblical idea, which is that if you're a church, you are a place that does what Jesus says you should do. Namely, you're a place that makes disciples. Disciples. In some way, shape, or form, if you're going to be a Jesus-following community, you have to be a community committed to making disciples. And that's always been the foundation of who we are, and I think that always will be the foundation of who we are, because we take Jesus' words seriously. And yet also, it's so foundational that it's a question we have to pause and consider again from time to time. And so I want to consider now an answer to that question that focuses on one word. And I bet you could guess what that one word is. Growth. It's a great word, but it's a six-letter word. Its root form, grow, is a four-letter word, so I can't use it on my daily wordle guesses. However, the past tense, grown, in honor of the sermon today, I used it as a guess on wordle, and it was terrible. It did not help me at all in solving the wordle today. But we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Growth. Um, We live in a world that likes to celebrate, that likes to put before us, put on offer all sorts of options for how we move through life. I found this, or David found this little road sign picture that I really liked because I feel like we could all find places in our lives where this is true. We can find people who say, you know what? I can get that done for you cheaper. 
Ooh, speaking my language. I like cheaper. Actually, that's not true. Sometimes I like to spend more money, and I should, I should like cheaper more than I do. But our world, I think maybe some other people in my family would like it if I liked cheaper more than I do. Um, we live in a world that likes to put on offer the cheaper option. Or maybe we can find people who say, oh, yeah, that's something good. That's something worth doing. I can help you get it done faster, right? Anything worth doing in life is worth doing more efficiently. We just love efficiency. We love to get things done quickly and easily. But if a church is a place that's about discipleship, if discipleship is ultimately the question of, hey, how does God want me to grow, then cheaper and faster I don't think are very reliable guides to move us forward on the journey to growth, or as this side said, on the journey to better. Sometimes if I want better, if I want to grow, if I want to, if I want to move forward on the path Jesus has me walking on, I have to resist the temptations of cheaper or faster, and I have to instead say, God, how are you working in me and inviting me to become better? Or we could say, God, how are you challenging me to grow? So we're going to talk about growth for three Sundays, and I want to talk this morning, uh, I, want to, I want to give a sermon that I've titled, The Growth Challenge. I remember um, one season of my life where I uh, went through a significant spurt of physical growth. Ninth grade, I grew from about 5'10 to about 6'2, my current height in one short year. Now, here's the thing about growth like that. A, it's awesome. Because being 6'2", as a sophomore in high school, is sweet. You're taller than most people, and you're a little bit self-centered and vain as a high school student. So you're like, yes, this is awesome. Growth is good. I like growing and being tall. And it also hurts like heck. I would lay awake at night rubbing my legs and crying because the pain hurt so much. And I think that simple illustration, I was talking to Richard Fritchie, he, uh, he topped out at 6'9 in life, and he's like, oh, Carl, don't even get me started on growing pains. I was like, you're right, I got nothing, I got nothing on you. Uh, but I think that physical illustration is true of all growth we experience in life. If I want to become better, healthier, more whole, more solid in any aspect of life, it's easy to find that the growth is something good and desirable. I want it. I like what it does. And also, it's something that is challenging. It requires hard work. It asks something of us. There's pain we must go through in order to find ourselves on the other side of growth. And it's not hard to find people who talk about this. I had a bunch of authors that came to mind, a bunch of books I've read that, that have reiterated this purpose, but I stumbled across a quote that I never heard before, but I really liked. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, he said it this way. He said, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. I mean, think about it this way. 
if you were to look back over the past year of your life. What in that past year was difficult? What was painful? What was hard work? What had some challenge to it? And if you look at that same year, how did you grow? If we can be thoughtful and intentional about the pain and the challenge that inevitably will come through our life, then we will find out that often the most painful or most challenging or most difficult thing is in fact, or at least it can in fact, be the very same thing that caused the most growth. Okay, that's all well and good, but it turns out the world we live in wants to seduce us away from this idea that we can work hard and grow in good ways. The world that we live in gives us something else on offer. They offer us what uh, the author Andy Crouch, who's the president of Barna, a big Christian research organization, he coined a term that I just love. He says, our world instead tries to tempt us with easy everywhere. Turns out, Our lives probably are easier in many regards than the lives of most humans who have gone before us. My great-great-grandfather immigrated to America from Norway, made his way to Minnesota, and started clearing the land in order to start the Helvig family farm. It's been in the Helvig family for 150 generations now. And when he started that farm, he had to work incredibly hard all day, every day. Sure, he had tools to make it easier. We know that a shovel makes it a lot easier to break the ground and turn the soil. But the thing about the tools that people used to have, like a shovel, is as much as it makes breaking the ground easier, it only works as hard as you make it work. You still got to put sweat on your brow. And people for generations have had this sort of dream of tools that we could have that would work even when we're not working, right? Disney made that dream famous with their little uh, animated film, The Magician's Apprentice, right? The magician is sitting there mopping the floor and he's like, I don't want to mop the floor. And so The Magician's Apprentice dreams about a mop that would mop the floor without the apprentice having to do anything to mop the floor, But what happens when that dream comes true? The mops rise up and take over and make the apprentice's life terrible. Well, you know what? You know what was running around my house yesterday? A little vacuum that just vacuums my floor all day, every day, whether or not I'm doing anything. And man, does my three-year-old love to sit on that vacuum and just ride it around. That's just favorite thing. We've now achieved, we live lives where what was only a dream, what would have been considered magic to generations past, is something we now carry in our pockets every day. Our phones can work for us even when we sleep. Our computers can crunch numbers without us having to do anything except a couple strokes of a key. We don't even have to sweat. Our lives are probably easier in many, many regards than the lives of many, many, of probably every generation that has come before us. But if that's true, I wonder, even though they're easier, are they in fact 
any better? Am I more joyful than my grandparents who had to break the ground and work so much harder? Is my character more pure and godly? Have I become the person God made me to be more so with this easier-than-ever life I live? If it's true that my life is easier than any generation to come, and that easy everywhere is on offer all the time, but if it's also true that growth is something good and desirable, that requires difficulty, then talking about growth for three weeks requires that we all pause and ask ourselves a really simple question. We're members, attenders, we're in this community of a church, a church that says, you know what, Jesus is calling us somewhere. He's, he's got us on a journey. He's moving us from where we're at to somewhere. And we know there's going to be pain and difficulty and challenge. But when we're going to face that, we have to consider, do I want, do I want to grow? I want to let that question kind of sink in over us. And I want it to sink in, not just today, but quite frankly, I want what we're talking about today and the next two Sundays, I want it to be one of those thoughts that just sort of grabs onto your mind and turns around in your head. Quite frankly, my hope is that it can bother you for the next few months because we're moving towards something that's going to kick off next fall that we're going to talk about now. And, and my, my hope is just that every one of us, whether we've considered this seriously before so we can quickly jump to the answer or whether this is the first time we've really thought about it and we have to kind of wrestle with it, I hope that every one of us can, can seriously and thoughtfully say, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I want to grow. I want to grow not just because I think it's good for me, not just because I'm ready to do the hard work, but I want to grow because I think God is doing a growth-producing work inside of me. Scripture's filled with images about growth. One of the images that shows up in many different parts of Scripture is the image of a healthy tree. Scripture loves to imagine and picture our lives and compare them to a tree which is healthy and thriving, which produces fruit, which grows strong in its season. One of those images comes from the teaching of Jesus himself. Uh, I'm going to read now from Matthew chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do so. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33. Jesus gives us an image of what God wants for us to be as growth-seeking people. Listen now to the words of Jesus. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Pray with me. God, we want to be people who listen 
and hear and respond to your voice. So God, may we hear and respond to your call to grow up in many ways in our lives. Amen. All right, if, if, if the picture from Scripture is humans who grow, then the obvious main question is, okay, um, how do I grow? If I'm going to grow, I need to know how I'm going to grow. And I'm going to get to the answer to the question, how do I grow, in two Sundays. But I want to lay a foundation for that question. I want to lay a foundation this morning by asking two uh, questions that I think are, we have to answer beforehand. Otherwise, we're going to get this question wrong. So here's the two questions about growth that I'm going to answer this morning. I'm going to answer the questions, what am I? What am I? Uh, and I'm going to answer the question, what is health? And here's why. See, um, Scripture has, this is just one, but you can find just image after image after image of uh, teachings about God's desire to grow us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring us to full maturity, to be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose roots go deep. Scripture gives us all sorts of images. But here's one of the things I know. Um, Yes, I can picture a tree that's healthy and growing, but I am not a tree. And so if water and sunshine and soil makes a tree grow... If I'm going to know what makes me grow, i got to know what I am first. And second, if I'm not a tree, and I'm a human, and and I can properly understand what a human is, then I, I want to explore, in order to understand how do I grow, I have to understand the related concept of what is health. Because we know that health or growth is always the result of health. Every healthy organism is every healthy, every healthy organism grows. It's inherent in any place you can look in the natural world. And the same is true for me. So, how do I grow? What does that look like? If I want to grow, if that's something I desire, then in order to know how that happens, I first have to say, what am I? Scripture uses all these images and metaphors, but I'm not a tree. I'm a human. So what are humans? And based on that, what does Scripture tell us a healthy human looks like? Those are the two questions that I've got. We're going to go to a few different places, uh, but I'm just going to try to paint a picture. Um, if, if you're interested in the world of Christian theological studies, this is called the theological topic of anthropology. We're just asking the question, what does the Bible say humanity really is? What's the picture that's painted? So that's what we're doing. We're doing some theological anthropology. You can go talk to your friends this afternoon and be like, what did you guys do in church this morning? <clears throat> we worked on understanding the theological anthropology. It was lovely. Or you could not say that. That would probably be. <laughs> so here's where I want to start. Jesus was asked a question. It was a common question. If you were an ancient rabbi, this was a question that you would have been asked at some point. They said, Jesus, hey, um, what's the greatest commandment? There's a whole bunch of them in the Old Testament. Which one's the greatest, most important? What comes first? And Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was trying to say, just, you've got to love God wholly, entirely, fully. He was trying to paint a picture of like, 
an all-in love for God. But in order to paint that picture, he referenced multiple different aspects of human life and experience. And he didn't seem to prioritize them in any way. Rather, he just acknowledged different facets of who we are. Turns out, if you read through the story of the gospel and you pay attention to the life of Jesus, you'll notice that Jesus' life was described in this multifaceted way. It's actually a kind of fun exercise you can do. Pick any biblical character and read through the story of their life and pay attention to how humans are consistently described as having multiple different aspects to their humanity. Just to take again the life of Jesus, for for example, Jesus was an emotional person. He evidenced, he lived, he felt, he demonstrated a range of emotions. Shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. His emotions were so great that it brought him to weeping. He got angry. He had compassion. Jesus was an emotional person. Second, we also know that Jesus had an intellectual life. We get this little verse in the Gospel of Luke, we talked about it last Sunday too, that said Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and humans. We are intellectual people. We read, we think, we study, and Jesus evidenced that he had to grow in his intellectual life and his ability to take knowledge and apply it to his life in what we call wisdom. Jesus lived a relational life. There's one of the disciples, uh, his name was John, and he was referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. So we see that Jesus didn't understand himself as just sort of living in isolation. The rest of the world is separate. It's just me and God. But rather, he lived a relational life. He was a physical creature. We hear uh, story after story where he got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired or exhausted. He had to get away and rest his body. And of course, throughout it all, Jesus engaged in the spiritual world. When I look at the life of Jesus, I think you can do the same exercise with the life of any biblical character. And when I consider what does Scripture tell me about what I am, what kind of a being I am, here's my best attempt at a short definition. I think humans are emotional, intellectual, physical, spiritual beings designed for love. I really wanted to put the word relational in there, but I didn't because I think designed for love is the essence of relationship. Now, if I'm honest, when I think about these different aspects to my life, what I tend to do is I tend to think about them in a way that I sort of categorize and separate them from one another, and I like to sort of keep them compartmentalized because I like compartments. I like to be able to put it in a box, and then if I don't want to deal with it, I'll just close the lid on the box, and I'll deal with the emotions later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with my spiritual life right now. I'll take care of the emotions later. I'm going to keep them in the box. When I'm ready, then I can go open the box. But it doesn't work that way, right? There's this image um, in the life of Jesus that I think is really compelling. It uh, it, it highlights these many different aspects of his life, right? Jesus was about to begin his public ministry. 
And it says, just before he began going to minister, he went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. Whoo! 40 days. No food. In the wilderness. It's the desert. Whoo! And then we get this just brilliant little line. It says, he fasted 40 days and he was hungry. <laughs> really? You thought you'd put that in there? Okay. It's good. I, 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 I wasn't sure, so I'm glad you clarified. But then the really interesting thing is after they made this, the authors made this kind of obvious statement, and he was hungry, they connected it in a really subtle way to what happens next. See, when Jesus was hungry, that was the moment when the tempter came and tempted him three different times. Do you think that the level of temptation Jesus felt was in any way connected to how hungry he was? You better believe it was. I mean, we see this all the time, right? You're with maybe a friend or with a spouse, and you're just kind of in a crabby mood, and you're a little more combative and a little more short-tempered than you normally are, and maybe the person you with, you're, you're with is, you know, is really self-aware, and they go, you know what you really need right now? You need a sandwich, because it's just going to calm you down. When we're hungry, it impacts our emotions. When our mental health is struggling in different ways, it can impact our relationships. So the last thing I'll simply say about what am I is not just that I'm emotional, intellectual, physical, spiritual, but that however we define the different aspects of who we are, Scripture tells us we have to acknowledge that these different aspects are, in fact, integrated with one another. They are interconnected so closely that I would say they're even inseparable. You cannot possibly work on your health in any one aspect without also paying attention to every aspect. So that brings us to the next question. What is health? What what does health really mean? What does health really look like? We love to talk about health in our physical bodies, and I think there's tons of language and experience around the concept of physical health. But when I really get deep into it, I realize that it is a bit more complicated than sometimes I make it out to be, right? Because I could be physically healthy. I could be eating well. I could be sleeping well. I could be uh, exercising regularly, and I could say, you know what, I'm, a, I'm in pretty decent physical health right now. I kind of pay attention. Okay, I know what it looks like. feel like I'm in physical health. And yet, as a healthy person, I could get sick. I could break my arm. I could have any number of acute illnesses. So I could be sick while also being a healthy person. Or conversely, I could be free from any acute illness, right? I don't have the flu, I don't have pneumonia, I don't have a broken arm, I don't have any acute sicknesses. But in that state, I could still be a profoundly unhealthy person. I could not be eating well, I could not be sleeping well, I could not be exercising. I could be very unhealthy, and just because I don't have any acute illness doesn't mean, therefore, I'm magically healthy. Health exists in some sort of a complicated way. So my three observations just, and this, this is not necessarily coming straight from Scripture, from a Bible verse, but as I was reflecting on the life of Jesus, 
As I was reflecting on the different dimensions of Jesus' life and how he teaches on health throughout Scripture, here's just three little observations that I'll make. I think if God made us emotional, intellectual, physical, spiritual, then there's a couple things we can, we can observe. It means that health, whatever we make of it, is multifaceted. The growth God wants to produce inside of us is not just growth in our character, but it's growth of our whole being. Second, I think it makes us realize that health is integrative. If these different parts of our lives connect with one another, then the goal of growth in Christ is not that we just pray more and call that good, but we pay attention to every aspect of our life. For me personally, I know that some of my most meaningful times of prayer happen while I'm running. And that makes me super weird. I get it. I don't understand why. That doesn't have to be true for you. But for me, a physical activity and a spiritual activity often strongly connect with one another. And last but not least, like we just kind of said, health is not some sort of binary. It's not like I can just go, yep, I'm healthy. Oh, shoot, I crossed the line. Nope, now I'm not healthy. But rather, health exists on a spectrum. It's complicated. It moves slowly from one place to another. Sure, if I eat Sour Patch Kids, it's not going to make me unhealthy today. But if I eat Sour Patch Kids only for the next year, it will, in fact, make me very unhealthy at some point. If you want a lived parable of this, you can go watch the old documentary, Super Size Me, where the guy ate McDonald's only all day, every day, for 365 days. Day one, oh, this Big Mac's good. Oh, I feel good. Life's good. I'm still in good shape. Day 273, he was feeling depressed. He couldn't wake up in the morning. He just, his whole life was falling apart. I was actually talking to um, church member, friend of mine, Adam Wilson. He's a uh, counselor, and he's a professor over at Denver Seminary. And we were talking about this idea of health. What is health? And, and specifically, this idea that health is integrative. It, it, every aspect of our life is interconnected with one another. And he goes, Carl, um, it's interesting. There's actually some new studies coming out, which are fascinating. And there's studies that are connecting two things, inflammation and counseling. And specifically, some doctors, medical doctors, took patients that had inflammation, or the, the patients had inflammation around the heart, and it was the type of inflammation that could cause um, damage to the heart, like really dangerous physical stuff. And some researchers came along and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this group of individuals who have physical illness, and we're going to have them go see a counselor. We're going to have them try to increase their emotional health and their mental health. And you know what they found? When the patients became mentally and emotionally healthier, the physical inflammation was reduced. It's something I think we know intuitively, but when when you see it proven in a study in a powerful way like that, you go, oh my gosh. And so I would just suggest, if God's desire is for us to be disciples, and we often think about discipleship as a primarily spiritual activity, I would suggest instead that a faithful disciple 
is somebody who grows spiritually by taking our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health, our relational health, and our spiritual health seriously as all different and critical parts of the same goal. I was tempted to say, I don't know if I'm going to say it, but I was tempted to say all health is spiritual health. I don't know if I'm totally sold on that, but I was thinking about saying it, so we'll see whether or not I actually say it. So, here's what I dream of. I think it's already true to a degree, but here's what I dream of. I dream of what would it look like if Centennial Covenant Church, Centennial Covenant Church was a place filled with people passionately committed to growth. And we pursued that realizing that we're humans, made by God as emotional, intellectual, physical, spiritual beings, designed for love. And we pursue that growth by trying to become healthy people in every area of our life in a way that acknowledges we're complex, we're multifaceted. Our health is not, we can't separate these different things, but they must be integrated. We're only one person with one life. And we do that by pursuing little step after little step of health in every area so that we can grow into the likeness of Christ, into the maturity he has for us, into the good news of the gospel that Christ has come, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Which brings us, as always, to the critical question. If we read God's word, if we understand our lives based on who God says we are, we have to always make sure we don't just let it stay up here, but it goes with us out there into the world. So we ask, what's your move going to be? And for today, I want to um, end by, again, just asking one question. If If this is true, if this is right, and I challenge you, go back and as you read scripture in your day to day life, see if, see if I'm right that we, we see evidenced in all parts of Scripture this multifaceted part of humanity. Just see where it shows up. I bet you'll be surprised. It'll open your eyes to different ways that Scripture testifies time and time again to this thing. But if God designed us to grow, not to stay stuck where we might be in sickness, but to become healthy through Him, not to, not to allow our brokenness to just be the state, but to let Him put us back together, Not to let weakness be who we are, but rather let him make us strong. To partner with God in growing us up. If that's true, then here's the question that I'd love us to just make our heartbeat for a season together. The question is, God, you made me, you designed me, so how must I grow? God made us not to stay stuck wherever we're at, but to pursue him on a journey we follow together. And that is a journey that will involve growth. Maybe it's painful. Maybe it's more challenging than we like. But it is most certainly good. Would you pray with me? God, like we've said, um, pain is something so natural to avoid, to resist, to push aside. And certainly we want to avoid unnecessary pain, but God, we also acknowledge it is through hardship that we become more and more of the person you made us to be. 
God, I pray that every one of us might fall in love, might find a desire and a hope and a passion to grow in the way you call us to grow. And help us to do that faithfully together as a community pursuing you. And we pray this, as always, in your name. And everybody said, amen. And here's the good news. God didn't just say, hey, you know, you're broken people living in a broken world, and I want you to grow, so good luck with that. Hope you do all right. Rather, his call to discipleship, a call which is costly, right? Which, as he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. His call to discipleship was matched with a promise. The promise was, I am with you always, every single day. And he wanted us to be sure we didn't forget that promise, so he told us to enact that promise on a regular basis. He gathered his disciples together at the end of his life, and he was eating a meal with them, and he took some bread, and he broke it. The broken bread is an illustration both of the brokenness of this world we live in, of the lives that we live, but especially of the fact that Jesus' own body would be broken. He said... Take and eat and remember me. And then he took a cup. And he gave thanks and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a promised relationship. The guarantee that God is with us always. And Jesus said, Eat the bread. Drink the cup. Remember me. And literally, by putting this food and drink in our mouths, we can be assured that God himself, no matter what challenge we're facing, God himself is inside of us, giving us the strength we need to face every challenge we ever have, we currently are, or we ever will face faith. So I invite you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Come and eat.